The Confluence Story Gathering Podcast is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit that connects people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River system. Find us at confluenceproject.org. If you look at the actual treaty itself, it's really just a piece of paper. What really matters is what you do with it. And the tribes over time throughout the Pacific Northwest have used that piece of paper in amazing ways. Welcome to the Confluence Story Gathering podcast, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. Story gathering has two meanings. We gather together and we gather stories. In this case, stories from a Native perspective. In this episode, we're going to hear from Yakima tribal member Paul Lumley. He was one of several Native thinkers and leaders who spoke at a Confluence story gathering at Washington State University in Vancouver, Washington. Paul is going to introduce himself and share his thoughts on how today treaties are a source of power for tribes. Here's Paul. My name is Paul Lumley. I um, was born and raised on the Yakima Reservation, uh, but I spent most of my time on the Columbia River. I'm a citizen of the Yakima Nation. Uh, I also have ancestry with Umatilla, Warm Springs, and Cowlitz. So it's good to be back in the land of the Cowlitz. So let's see, what have I done in my life? Oh, I went to work for the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission as a summer intern, and uh, about 20 years later became their executive director. Went to work in the Pentagon as tribal liaison. That's pretty weird. Worked on a national organization, an amazing organization, the Native American Indian Housing Council advocated for tribal housing on a national scale and got some pretty cool legislation passed on the Capitol Hill. That was pretty fun. Now I'm the executive director of the Native American Youth and Family Center, which is kind of by the airport in Portland. And um, it's an amazing organization uh, serving uh, the tribal community in Portland, uh, larger than I thought when I took the job. We have about 130 employees, a Native American alternative high school and wraparound service programming to help these kids be successful, not only to graduation, but beyond that for college and career, uh, serving families, and also helping the community lift out of poverty with economic development projects. So that's a pretty cool place to work. The treaties actually have quite a bit of value, right? It was a, it's a contract. It was signed a long time ago. If you look at the actual treaty itself, it's really just a piece of paper. There's nothing, there's no value in a piece of paper. What really matters is what you do with it. And the tribes over time throughout the Pacific Northwest have used that piece of paper in amazing ways. But it was a hard road to get to where we are today. There uh, was a group of fishermen on the Columbia River who knew that treaty right was there, and they had a right to go fishing, yet the state of Oregon was shutting down the tribal fishery. They couldn't even get their own tribal government to protect their fishing rights, so they did a fish-in. And they got uh, cited, and uh, they fought it in the federal court system. So uh, So Happy is the name of the fisherman, and uh, he sued the state of Oregon's um, fish and wildlife director. Last name was Smith, so, so, so Happy v. Smith. Well, uh, the United States government stepped in and said, well, wait a minute here. We have a contract with these tribes. This is um, United States' responsibility to protect the tribe. So it became United States versus Oregon. That was 1969. And uh, it is still the longest-running court case in in U.S. history. Um, And it established the tribe's right uh, to a fair share of the fish. 
And then um, a few years later, uh, some tribes in Puget Sound uh, also tested the court system and uh, ended up getting the uh, Bolt decision, which defined um, what that right meant, and it was 50% of the harvestable surplus. Also, has some interesting language in there that salmon uh, needed to have the habitat uh, to survive. So those are some really important pieces of legislation in the United States history. Huge. And it put the tribes in large part in the, in the driver's seat for, for a long time. All those battles were in the courts then. And then it started transitioning about data and information and science. And the tribes knew they had to have their own scientists. And think about the history. You saw those hatcheries. There's a lot of history with those hatcheries. When the dams were built, the tribes were promised there was going to be this mitigation. There's going to be so many hatchery fish out there. The tribes are going to have more fish than they had even before the dams. At the time, there was two agencies, Bureau of Commercial Fisheries and Bureau of Sport Fisheries. They changed their names. Now it's U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and National Marine Fisheries Service. But back then, it was all about protecting non-Indian fisheries. So they conspired to move all those hatcheries down below Bonneville to the Columbia River because they said if they put those fish upriver, the Indians are going to catch them and they're just going to die because of the dams. So this huge injustice occurred. This mitigation, this, this bargain that the tribes made, it was taken away from them because, you know, when, the, when you release a salmon in the river it'll come right back to that same spot. So they just reprogrammed all those fish downriver away from the tribes. So uh, in the 1980s, I started working for the Columbia River and Tribal Fish Commission. And um, I had this degree in mathematics. And this is a long time ago, back when fax machines were like cool, right? <laughs> and uh, so I showed up in a meeting with a calculator and everything and uh, started using their own data against them. And it was in the mid-1990s that uh, we started going to court, and I, I testified in about a three-year period in, in 11 different court cases. Almost all of them were related to the hatcheries, and it was to try and reprogram these fish upriver locations, and they threw everything at us. They threw at genetics and disease, and the list was long, all these reasons why we couldn't move those fish upriver, but we kept going to court and we kept winning. And the Sneaker River Falls Chinook program, which I am most proud of, went from a few hundred fish a year to oh, 60, 70,000 on a consistent basis to the point where I think a real argument could be made that they should be taken off of the Endangered Species Act list. So we know that if tribes are in charge of their own science, they can do great things. And, uh, um, and I, I saw it happen in my lifetime, and I was a part of that history, and I'm really proud of it. You're listening to Yakima Nation tribal member Paul Lumley speaking at a Confluence story gathering in Vancouver, Washington. In the second portion of the evening, the talk turned to resilience and the passion that tribes have to maintain their traditions. Again, here's Paul. I find resilience to be one of the best words because uh, we have suffered so much trauma in our lifetimes. Generational trauma, it passes down, you know, not too far from here. Uh, Chamala Indian School was a place where young little Indian kids were stolen from tribal areas and forced into the schools and have their culture stripped from them, their hair, their language, their regalia. And uh, that generational trauma lives to this day. Uh, but the reason why I like that word resilience is because it's, it's us taking control of our own destiny and saying, okay, well, that happened to us, but we're going to survive and we're going to find a way to be happy. And um, I see it happening in 
all over the place. I see it in every native community that I go to. They are proud of their culture. The language is resurging. It is just amazing. And so I, I love that word, resilience. A long time ago, I mean, a long time ago, back when humans could still talk to the animals, humans were having a hard time uh, surviving. And so they asked the creator for help. And the creator came down and looked at the human situation and um, realized they did need help and asked for sacrifices to step forward uh, to help the human survive. And the first to step forward was the salmon and gave his life to the human so they could live. And then after that came the deer and the game and then the berries and then the roots. And so the creator handed these gifts, these sacrifices to the humans so they could survive. And he said, but there's something I really need you to understand, that there is a bargain here. This is the grand deal. We will give you these sacrifices, but in return, you must always take care of these foods, these first foods. And if you take care of these first foods, they will always take care of you. So now if you go to any of our longhouse ceremonies anywhere out here in the Pacific Northwest, you're going to see that honoring of those same first foods everywhere. We all do the same thing. In fact, we have ceremonies for individual fishes, individual roots and berries and game. We have our songs that recognize that relationship that we have with the Creator, and it's a constant reminder to us how we carry ourselves now is going to make a difference for future generations, and we have to make those decisions in a way that respects that deal we made with the Creator. And so when the tribes were asked to sign those treaties back in 1855, there was no way they were going to sign those treaties unless they reserved the rights, their own rights, never given away to anybody. They reserved them. It wasn't granted to them. They reserved those rights to fish, to hunt, to gather roots and berries. And that's exactly what those treaties say. So when you see tribes out there, why are they so passionate about environmental causes? You know, that's why. It's, it's who we are as Indian people. It's how we relate to the Creator and how we care about future generations. That's why that passion is still there to this day. That was Yakima Nation tribal member Paul Lumley. He's the executive director of the Native American Youth and Family Center in Portland, Oregon. You can learn more about their work at nayapdx.org. That's N-A-Y-A-P-D-X.org. A special thanks to our host for the Confluence Story Gathering, Washington State University in Vancouver, and to the presenting sponsor for the event, Humanities Washington. To find out more about Confluence and our five completed sites along the Columbia River system, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. And remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence. That's you. Join us today. Thanks for listening to the Confluence Story Gathering podcast. For more episodes, visit confluenceproject.org or wherever you get your podcasts. 